Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Questlove Supreme. I'm Questo, your host. Uh, we have Team Supreme with us right up now. now. Uh, what's up, Steve? I never go to you first. How, how's your life? That's how your life is? <laughs> is that a word? What? Oh. Yeah, um, you know. I, I'm, everything's great, man. New York City, we're opening up. We've got a full audience at the Fallon Show. Everything feels good. Um, mentally, I'm a wreck. Thanks for asking. Let's move on. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to find out why you... Maybe you can get a, 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 a reading from our guest today. That'd be great. That'd be great. <laughs> That'd be great. Uh, Fontigolo is also here with us. What's going on, bro? I'm good, bro. I'm good, man. Down 23 pounds, man. What? Yeah, yeah. Man. Oh, I'm, is that I'm, is that louder than I usually am? Okay, I'll turn it down. <laughs> sorry, not it actually was. Sorry. <laughs> As if she that. couldn't. But I appreciate the enthusiasm. Nah, man, you inspired yeah. me, man. That's so, what's up, know, man. That is yeah, what's man. up. And counting. And counting. Yeah, I, I was wow. about to say that um, I'm the king of like you know doing zero to 100 on the autobahn and then when you just gotta do that like that last 30 mm-hmm. you start laxing off so all enough yeah right now i'm i'm drinking and eating dandelions and and other oh un- you untasty. can eat those yo dandelions dog. are so bitter and horrible you just don't but you do eat them too gina you you, you eat dandelions I, I tried i Dude, tried it was they make wine out of dandelions if you do two weeks of this dandelion juice that i'm doing that's that I could probably drop like forty pounds. Yo, I hope so, everybody. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just trying to get to. Yeah, drop forty pounds and your September. will to live. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, last number line, Lisa, uh, Laia, uh, Nicole. She, she's Yo. rather disgusted by what no. we just said. No, I'm excited. I'm excited to have Gina on. I'm excited. Happy Tuesday to you, Gina. I, you ain't supposed ah, to post the video yet, yes. but I'm waiting. I'm, Happy no, Tuesday. I'm late. I'm so late today. Okay. I've been all on back to back Zoom meeting today. Okay. I've not had a chance to do my tunes on Tuesday. Yes. All right, so th- that leads to uh, our guest. Um, our guest today hails from my hometown of London, England. 
I, I never I never pass up a opportunity to speak on my little three years in London and I just claim it like it's been my my uh, my my city of birth. Um she is a raw and hilarious uh British comedian um with uh, a Nigerian lineage, which isn't too far from my people's in Benin, but you know, I'll 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 claim next door neighbor. Um she's also in addition to being a hilarious comedian, she's one of the co-creators of the CBS smash, uh, Bob Hart's Abishola. I always thought it was Bob loves Abishola, but of course it's Bob Hart. I know, everybody thinks that, yeah. Right, exactly. Um, and if you've seen her work, you know that her life uh, is an absolute open book. Speaking of which, her memoir, penned during the pandemic, I believe, is titled uh, Cock Handed, which... Cack, not cock. Cock. I was hoping Cack. that it- Cat handed, forgive me. <laughs> yes, no, this ain't on video, so we gotta. We oh, gotta say oh. Yes. I'm still there. I'm still there. I don't care. I'm still there. I'm still there. I'm no, cat handed. Um, which, yeah, let's hear it for the lefties in the house. I'm also a lefty, so uh, we're genius. We special. You know, she shares her life and her experiences and her relationship with her family. A total open book, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome to Quest Love Supreme, Gina Yashere. I hope. Perfect. Thank you. I was waiting with bated breath for the name. I was like, is he going to mess it up? Is he going to mess it up? No. I mean, it's easy. You're, you're, you're hooray with a yeah. Exactly. Yes. Hooray. Exactly. You're, you're a comedian. Hooray. Yes. Hooray. Okay. I'm stretching that. But But everyone has done very different variations of how to pronounce your last name. Oh God, I get Yashir a lot. I'm like, no, no, it's Nigerian. Yashir, you almost have to shout my name. <laughs> okay. Yashir, okay, I get it now. Um, yo, I'm so glad you're here because you know I've been I've been a fan of your work. You know, I've seen all all three of your specials, well, three and a half specials on on Netflix at least. Very familiar with you, but you know, I've never we've never gotten a chance to talk or. I know, I've seen you. I've walked past you on planes and gone, hi. Uh, <laughs> oh, so we, we, we've we been, uh, okay, two yeah, ships I, in the night. I okay. saw you on a plane once and I was just like, all right, and I didn't want to make a big deal. You should have said something. You were trying to be kind of inconspicuous and I was like, I don't want to. So oh, no. Nah. I, I call whole... that a Tuesday. You know? <laughs> Me inconspicuous, I don't know. Um, <laughs> so you were, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're here simply because knowing how open you are about uh, your life living in London and growing up there and your experiences, which, of course, as an outsider with me, I didn't get to see those things. And of course, also in the pandemic, um, taking a crash course on small acts, um, Mm. (laughs) which is, uh, oh, yes, you know, Steve McQueen's uh, series. Yes, I, I was like, wow, did I did I ever live in London? Because I didn't realize that these experiences were going on over there as well. Like mine was slightly different because we were just a band trying to get our next gig. So, mm-hmm. you know, we very rarely did we get to truly like mingle with with people that didn't have to do with like work or interviews or that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. can you talk talk to me about your experiences living in London like I assume that everything that you speak on in your life is is true um 100% 100% okay. true. so I, I was born in London uh, East London Bethnal Green I am a cockney by birth like proper yeah. 
cut me. Okay. Geezer. Um, like, what geezer? Proper cut me. <laughs> so I was born in East London. Um, I'm a child of the 70s. I'm a child of the 70s and 80s. And uh, England was super racist. When my parents came to England in the 60s, super racist. That's when they had, you know, when people used to put signs on their do- doors. No dogs, no blacks, no Irish. So when you're going to wow. rent a place... You know, you don't, you don't even need to bother ringing that doorbell if it's got that sign on the door. So this is what my mum and dad faced in England in the 60s. It was openly racist. And 70s and 80s, not much different. This was the time when the National Front were prevalent. National Front was a very far-right organisation in, mm-hmm. in, in England. They tried to sort of style themselves a political party, but they were just a bunch of thugs. And their graffiti was ubiquitous. It was all over London. NF, NF, NF. And uh, yeah, I remember being chased and spat on by skinheads a lot when I was uh, a kid, like eight years old. I remember eight years old being spat on by a skinhead. I remember me and my mum my walking down the street and people shouting epithets out the car at us and, and swerving into puddles and splashing us. So that was London. That was wow. like people, the, the Americans' view of the British being so genteel and polite. It's it's absolutely hey, now nah, what well, we know. Listen, when I went to London and I saw y'all niggas eating beans for breakfast, I understood how y'all used to rule the world. Uh, <laughs> beans for breakfast is the shit. That's some savage shit. That. Nah, mate, you not done that. To eat beans. Beans are supposed Pudding. to be the best. Yeah. beans on toast. Is, uh, is the best thing on earth. Don't even try like, uh, it. Hey, that's some savage shit. Are you, <laughs> you are the heathens. Are you really about to heathens. say that? Is English food better than Nigerian food, though? Come on, Nigerian food is the best. Come on now. Right? Come yeah, on now. Yeah, yeah, I like some potatoes. Everything curry. came from us, man. Aren't you watching High on Hog? Everything yes. came from us. Yes. Everything yes. came from us. So yes. you're saying that you ride for all English things like Marmite sandwiches? No. and I hate Marmite. Marmite, oh. no. Beans okay. on toast, yes. Bubble and squeeze. Bangers and mash. Bangers, bangers and mash. Bangers and mash. I love a bit of bangers and mash. You can't beat it. But some of it, not so much. I don't do the black pudding. Ugh, it's basically. Okay, I was going to ask. Okay, can you, can, you, can you explain it's to our pig audience? Blood. It's gelatinous oh. pig blood. Oh, Philly, close your eyes. Philly, wait, time out. Ears. I didn't. Wait, all all these years that I've been having, uh, I'll usually have the black pudding. They'll serve that when we're on like a, a ferry coming yeah. from like. Europe it's headed to the UK stuff. and they'll have like black pudding as breakfast. You're telling me there's blood in that? I mean, yeah, you it's, eat pork? It's, it's made from pig's blood. I did not know that. You it's eat pork? disgusting anyway. You're, you're not going to make a comic moment out this, uh, Laia. Have you seen how much I weigh? <laughs> what, you think I'm being... That man just talked about drinking dandelion juice. I don't think pork chops is in the future. <laughs> it's not even the chops. The chops are delicious. It's just the blood. Just the blood. Yeah, Black pudding. It's made from blood. It's gross. And as we were explaining earlier, uh, that you know, in America, I think like the beans, the beans that are source associated with pork and beans or hot dogs and pork and beans are mm-hmm. kind of an afternoon evening dish. Whereas in England, beans, that's a breakfast a dish. Breakfast, baked bean, eggs and beans, chips, eggs, beans. Eggs, beans, sausages. That's Ooh. a proper breakfast. I know, when I first came to America and I was like, where's the beans, man? Where's the beans? I mean, like, <laughs> like, I mean oh, man. Mexico does lost. it. Mexico does it in LA, but it tastes way better, I think, probably than what you Yeah, but not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I ain't got that one, Gina Yashere. I can't, I can't nah, rap. Like, the like, bangers uh, and mash, I can do. The bangers and mash, I, I, I could. I if you put that, the beans good. on top, it makes all the difference. Oh, God. No. I love chips and beans. Oh, my God. You have no idea, man. You, you know don't know. You don't know. No, Wait. you don't know. You're, just, you're, Gina, you're lost. Gina, I'm gonna tell you this much. They gotta be refried. I miss, I miss 
touring so much. Ugh. I'm actually I'm actually going to side on your 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 side of the fence th- this time around. Normally I'd be with them. Like, <laughs> yeah. OK, well, wait, can I ask a question, though, because. Yes. Even though Gina is born and raised in London, her mother is not. And so I must think that your mother does not feel the same way about this English food. And to, and, and on the back of that question, can you also break down like how dope and royal your, of a situation your mother came to to come and then came to London and it was a flip of the, scr- the switch? Oh, yeah. Uh, for one, my mom loves a bit of baked beans. Don't even knock it. My mom is full Nigerian. She loves Nigerian food. Like when we were kids, we ate Nigerian foods in the house. But my mom loved mashed potatoes and my mom loved baked beans. So it was the dichotomy. But yeah, um, yeah, my mom was from a wealthy, very well-known family. My mom's from a family called the Abasaki family. And they are practically royalty in Nigeria. And my mom was from a wealthy family. Her dad had a load of wives. She was educated. Her, uh, her dad traveled all over the world on business and he took her with him. And she went to private school and she was a school principal in Nigeria before she was 24 years old. So she was very, mm. you know, she did, she, yeah, she was a very, she achieved a lot. And then she came to England <laughs> to be poor. <laughs> wow. Why you know, did like, she come to England? Well, long story short, if you read my new book that's coming mm. out, that's how, you'll know that my, my mother was the daughter of the first wife. So my, my, my Grandfather had many wives. As you know, polygamy was widely practiced in Nigeria. Oh, tell me and, about that. Oh, yeah, lots of wives. Lots of you wives. You ain't got enough I'm money asking for a friend. I know lots you of wives. <laughs> lots of wives. And my daughter, my mum was the daughter of the first wife. But the first wife was very powerful, as the first wife is, as the first. Um, the other wives were very jealous. And there was uh, the other wives murdered my grandmother. They poisoned. Oh. Yeah. Oh, we proper. never get into your this career. Is, you got to start oh, yeah. from the beginning. <laughs> This Tell is some stories. Game of Thrones shit, yeah. Yeah, for real. Game of Thrones wedding. shit. So yeah, uh, the other wives did not, my mother, my grandmother was like, uh, listen, the other wives don't like me. These bitches are trying to kill me. If anything happens to me, get my daughter out of Nigeria. So she ended up dying. Uh, she was poisoned. And when she died, she had a mark on her throat. Now, before my grandmother died, she always used to say, when I come back, when I come back, I'm going to, I'm going to speak English. I'm going to be in England. I'm not going to have all these children because my, my grandmother had 11 kids. I'm not, I don't want all these children. I'm going to do a man's job. I'm going to have freedom. All of these things. When she died from a poison, she had a mark on her throat. Obviously, uh, when she died, my grandfather sent my mum out of the country because he was like, well, they've killed the, the wife. I'm not going to have them kill my, my daughter too. So he sent my mum to England to study. And that is where my mum met my dad. They, they met each other. They had me. And I came out with this mark on my throat. So basically, I'm a reincarnation wow. of my grandmother. So that, that's the story, because Nigerians believe heavily in reincarnation. And I came out doing all the things that my grandmother said. I was about to say, yeah, you kind of fulfilled her legacy. Manifestation I fulfilled there. everything. So when I said, my mom was like, comedian, you want to become a clown? I was like, mom, remember, this is what your mother wanted. I am your mother. <laughs> so that's how I get away with stuff. But yeah, my mom, so my, that's how my mother ended up in England studying. And she was a teacher. She came to England. She wanted to carry on working as a teacher, but England was super racist. She couldn't. My dad, she met my dad. My dad was studying for his PhD. Uh, he was and he, he was also a qualified lawyer. They he couldn't get work as a lawyer in in England. So basically, they met, they got married, they had us, and then my dad was like, 
forget this. I want to go back to Nigeria. This is not, I, I ain't driving a bus when I'm a lawyer. I'm a lawyer in Nigeria. I'm not staying here to drive a bus. Let's get the kids, let's go. And my mum was like, no, uh, I've had my children in England. They are British. I want them to stay in, in, in England and be afforded all the opportunities that being British entails. I'm staying here with my kids. So basically my mum and dad split up. My dad went back to Nigeria when I was three and I didn't see him again till I was 37 when I, when I went out there to do a, a show in Nigeria. So that was it. Wait, you met your father I, backstage uh, at a show? He came to my show. So but, uh, oh. at that point I was pretty well known in England and pretty well known in Nigeria. I'd done a couple of sketches on television in England that had gone viral in Nigeria. So I got flown out to Nigeria to do a show and obviously, my, I still carry my father's name. So my father was like, when I was going, my mom was like, oh, your father is going to turn up. You watch, he's going to turn up at the show. Wait, you wait and <laughs> claim you. And he did. He turned up at the show with a bunch of brothers and sisters that I'd never met. So it was, it was, it's all in the book. It's all in the book, people. Okay. Yes, it is. Yeah. And also in the book, I remind, I want to tell people too, you give a good history on the empire of uh, Benin and whatnot. I was like, oh, wow. I had no idea. So can you, can, can you yeah. briefly let me know about, I, I just recently found out my lineage to Benin, like maybe Benin, this, a year ago. Benin, the country next to Nigeria or Benin, the, the city the in Nigeria, Benin, the ah. Because there's two Benin. There's Benin City in Nigeria, which is where my family are from. And then there's Benin, the country, which is next country. to Nigeria, where they speak French. Uh, yeah. So are you Benin? But I'm, if they say Benin in your, I'm, I'm assuming it's Benin, the country. I, okay. I believe that it was Nigeria. the country simply because when there was a civil war happening, the Nigerians had some uh, Benin uh, prisoners that mm -hmm. they used as uh, leverage to negotiate. Uh, my great great grandfather was one of those uh, uh, those captured and sold into slavery in America. So right, I believe it's right. the country. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely the country then. Benin. Yes, but Before, yeah, I do open my book with history of Nigeria and the Benin within Nigeria, which is now southern Nigeria, and where my family are from, and 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 how advanced the society was, and how the British came and tried to take and they got their asses handed to them by the Benin warriors. And then they came back and burnt Benin to the ground and stole all those bronzes. And hence why you've got all these Benin bronzes in museums in New York and around the world, because the British came, burnt down Benin, stole all the bronzes and sold the bronzes to pay for the army that they'd used to burn down Benin. Mm. Ooh, man, the damage that the British have done to the world, man. Oh, Jesus. the British, uh, like, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. When you guys go, oh, Britain is so polite and genteel. It's a no, it isn't. They are straight savages. Well, <laughs> and also not for nothing. Nigerians usually act like ain't nobody come and mess with them at all. So this history is not always told in that aspect. It's like ain't nobody come try to colonize us. We good. No, we good. Why, oh no, we speak, they were colonized. We only got our independence. Nigeria only got their independence in 1960. I'm, I'm, <gasps> From, right. from, from England. So 1960, we got our independence. And even then, the, the economy was completely messed up after that because white people came out and, and took everything with them. And they, they'd already raped it of all the resources, all the oil, all the everything. All the resources, yeah. And then the, there was a lot of money in oil for a while, but mm. it all collapsed. It all collapsed. The school systems was based on the British school systems. Dang. You know, they took away the element that Nigerians were all about. Africans were all about family and learning trades and, and, and passing down stuff within the family. And the British came and went, no, nah, don't forget all that family stuff. Ah, no, 
Capitalism. It's all about capitalism. You learn, you get these qualifications, and then I get, and so they completely changed the way that Nigerians worked, and it's just ruined, in my opinion, ruined the country. Now you've got a few greedy people just creaming everything off. They're just ruined. Mm-hmm. You know? So that's so, the history. <laughs> I, hey, at least you know yours. You ain't have to go to African ancestry, right? Somebody, I'm just saying. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, when you were speaking of your family earlier, are you in an active kind of uh, communication with them now? Like, how does the idea of a family reunion work or well my dad's like my dad died a few years ago um that side of the family you know he wasn't there for me you know i met him once when i went to nigeria and i was very polite to him because he you know he's the other half of my genetic tree and i was very you know i'm nigerian so i was brought up to respect my elders so when i met him i'm not gonna go mother you i ain't Mm. seen you since i was three i wasn't gonna do that so i was very Polite, we sat, we, I took him to dinner, we talked. I asked him all the questions that I'd had from my childhood, like, why didn't you come back for us? Why? And he had a stack of letters that he'd been sending to us as kids that had all been returned because my mother was like, get out of here. Because she, he broke her heart. You know, my mother was pregnant with my younger brother when my dad left. So imagine mm. she, in England, in the 70s, giving oh, birth by herself. As a single mom. As a single mom in the seventies in England, where she had no family, nobody, and she and I was all—I had another brother, so it was me and my other brother were toddlers at the time, and she was giving birth to uh, my youngest brother. So w- me and my brother had to go into foster care temporarily while she went into hospital to have this baby because she had nobody. Hmm. So we went into care. Uh, you know, she got a white family to look after us. Uh, while she went to hospital to have this baby. So my mother never forgave my father for that. Can you imagine being in the hospital, all these, all these women, all their husbands are coming in with flowers for mm. their wives who've had these babies and she's lying there by herself with absolutely nobody. So she never forgave him, never forgave him. So as a result, I kind of, you know, I'm not gonna say I hated him, but I was like, look, you, you, you abandoned us. You know, I went through life with a horrible stepfather Horrible, mm, as right. you, you never came for us. So I give you your due respect as my father figure, but that's all you're getting. So I met him the once, and after that, I was like, all right, I've met him. That was great. I took a few that pictures. That was all you needed. You know, yeah. That's all I need. <laughs> so, you know, when he died, his other kids are like, and, you know, are you coming to the funeral? And I'm like, no, I am sorry for your loss. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> he was a father to you, and I'm sorry for your loss, but I did not know the man, so no. I'm not coming for the funeral. What about your mother's big family? Oh, my mother's side of the family, yeah. yeah. Uh, not the wives who, who killed her well. mother. I don't. I didn't know any of those, but I've met many of my uncles, her sisters, yeah, a lot of them came, a couple of them came to England. So my mom's side of the family, good. All her friends, yeah, that's that's who I rock with. <laughs> okay, I see. That's what's up. Hey, can you, okay, I'm glad you're on the show to also clear up uh, this this conception because Americans have a different, especially Black Americans, ha, ha, they we have this different idea of who Nigerians are, uh, mm. coming from this. A, hey, I'll be <laughs> real with it. Listen, not not in DC, not in Houston, and not in Atlanta. But yes, outside uh, of DC, Houston, and Atlanta, they don't know. I know, but it's <laughs> it's almost like a crazy stereotype that we never get to. Dispel that myth because we rarely have Nigerian guests on the show. True. What's this? What's the stereotype? But no, just basically like the idea Nigerians of the scamming. Nigerian scam artist that this oh, invisible yeah. scam artist that 
we. I mean, you know, we're really, we are really good at that shit. I mean, I can't even lie. <laughs> Oh damn! I'm, 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 I'm trying to get you to wipe it off the table. No, you just brought that no. Nigerians are very smart and very resourceful. And if you're stupid enough to fall for some of these scams and give them your money, then uh, look, I went to Nigeria, <laughs> man. Look, it I is was, I was 16. I, I was 16. I okay. It. it look, it is going on. I went to Nigeria, yes, and I when scared. I went to Lagos, I saw houses with signs on the houses that said, "This house is not for sale." They had signs on the houses because what was happening, people were going on the internet and selling other people's houses. So selling houses that don't belong to them. So you're in the house and people knock That's on the door. Genius. Going, yeah. And people knock on the door and like, excuse me, what are you doing in my house? I just bought this house. Like, no, bitch, this is my house. But this is what was happening. They brought so, that scam here, Gina. Are you aware that Nigerians <laughs> brought that scam here? And there's a scam like all over your Craigslist, your favorite apartment search. You see a beautiful house and the, and the price doesn't look believable. And then you call and they tell you to drive by and look at it from the outside. Uh, and, you get, oh, <laughs> and they give you a long story about how somebody lost their job and somebody died. And da, 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 da. Girl. You fell for that one? You fell for that? Yeah, I was going to no, say. No, no, you no. I, didn't, I didn't fall, fall. <laughs> I just got to the part where you drive past the house. I feel okay. you for that, right? Yeah. I remember someone tried that. You know, all the scams were out there. I remember someone, I was selling a phone years ago on, was it eBay or something? I was selling a phone. This is how long ago it was. It was on eBay. Selling a phone and this Nigerian sent me an email going, listen, I think I wanted 300 for the phone or something. And this guy was like, I will give you 700. I'll give you 700. Just send me the phone and I will send you uh, a Western Union. And I emailed him back and I was like, did you look at my name? <laughs> Did you look at my name? You are trying to scam another Nigerian. Don't even try. It. Don't even try. It. <laughs> now, Gina, is the scamming pure Nigerian or is it tribal specific? <clears throat> because some may say that certain tribes are more scammy than others, or not. Uh, I don't know about that. I just think it's just look. I. I'm not saying all Nigerians, it's a small percentage of Nigerians that are doing this. It's not all Nigerians. I can't do that shit. I don't even know how to. I would love to learn. But no, not all like it's a small percentage. It's it's been blown up out of proportion to make it look like every Nigerian is scamming. There's a small percentage of them who are really, really good at it. But I trust it's a very small number. <laughs> I don't okay. know which tribe it is. I don't know. I'm, I'm glad you clear that up. Thank you. I didn't, cl I didn't clear that up, but you know what? <laughs> honesty. It's all about honesty, people. We're doing honesty. So I'm being honest. Facts. Well, honestly, I got to I gotta go. I got to cancel this check I just sent out to somebody. I'll be right back. <laughs> Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black Stories, Black Truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. 
In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. You know, I, I, could you tell us about creatively what was your like life like growing up in Britain at the time period, like your formative years, like 10, 11, 12, like your your school existence or just like what did you generally do in, uh, during that time period? Well, same as every other kid did try to just play, do my schoolwork. Um, it, it was a struggle. Being an African kid was not cool at the time. And even though I say England was racist, it wasn't white kids I was fighting with at school. It was other black kids, the descendants of slaves wow. from the Caribbean, African Caribbean kids, you know, because they, they got the same education that we all got. And uh, in the 70s and 80s, the view of Africans, the only image of Africans on TV was either uh, sitting there with flies landing on our face, begging for food donations or in Tarzan movies chasing white men around and trying to and cook them in pots with bones in our noses. So we were seen as primitive and heathen and animalistic. And mm. that was what the image of Africans was at the time. So as an African kid at school, I will put up with me. You guys in America, it was African booty scratcher. In, in England, it was African bubble, spear chucker, all of that stuff. Yeah. And it was, it was black kids who could do that because the British were so good at hiding their, their what the, the, you know, because this is the thing you don't know about. The, the British, the Europeans were the biggest slavers, biggest. Mm-hmm. The Belgians were disgusting. The Dutch were disgusting. Britain was number one. Belgium, like England was number one. The British Empire, they were number no. one. They just hid it better. Like I used to do this routine where I say the, the, the Americans did the equivalent of stealing shit, as in stealing people and bringing it back to their own house. 
Whereas the Brits stole but kept it in other people's houses. The so Caribbean. they, yeah. So they went to Africa. Caribbean, yeah. They took, they stole people, but they didn't bring them all back to England. They put them on, you know, their colonies in the Caribbean. Colonies, uh huh. Right, Saint to, Kitts to, to, and all yeah, that. Yeah, Barbados and Kitts, Jamaica. Mm-hmm. All of those people are descendants of slaves. All the black people from the islands, but. They did not educate the the black people from the islands as to where they came from. They just assumed that they were from the islands, that there was a there are black people from Africa and there are black people from the islands. They didn't know. So I had so many fights at school with kids who'd be calling me names. I go and I go, do you not know that you're African too? You came from I ain't no African, I'm a Jamaican, I ain't no primitive, I don't run around with no bones in my nose. I used to get that at school. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until roots came out in England that they went mind blown. It's all blown. the same thing. Mm. Because they didn't, they were not educated. It's not their fault. They were not educated. The school system did not educate us to tell us that all black people came from Africa. They didn't know it. So at school, I went for a horrible time with other black kids just calling me names. I was constantly getting into fights at school. And that's where I started using humour because I was getting into too much trouble because I was I had to make myself into the crazy kid. Don't mess with her because she will punch you in your face. Tall, big, small, you know, I would just, I would fight. I'd be ready to fight mm. to show, so that I wouldn't get bullied. I'd be like, I will fight any of you. Don't even try. I will fight you. So I, then I started using humour to kind of circumvent those, right. you know, those confrontations. Um, but yeah, that so was my weird. life at school. <laughs> okay, so... It's weird to hear you say that because in my mind, I thought that type of ignorance was just for America. Because, yeah, like I also, you know, had experience like that in the mid 70s or whatever, like the 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 worst insult you could say, uh, like, like on a, the on the playground or whatever and on recess is to call someone African. Like mm-hmm. that's when it's like, yo, I'm ready to f- fuck you up. Yeah. You yeah. say that to me again. But, you know to hear that this also is happening with African kids over it's white supremacy they, they, they oh have, my god white supremacy they indoctrinated the entire planet I mean it's genius right. what they did when you think about it generations <laughs> of people not okay, knowing uh, you, you get off, off the floor, I'm sorry I'm, I'm also dying because I do another podcast with Jill Scott and Asia from Kindred and, and Asia always says the root of everything that has to go on with black people is white supremacy so it's just absolutely. like word absolutely mm. wow. they, 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 genius not even the fact that they subjugated us, that they convinced us that we were less than. And generations later, hundreds of years later, we still believe that we are less than. We still do. Hence, you have all the, you know, African-Americans hate Africans, Haitians hate this, this, the try, everything stems from that. The religion that was forced upon us to have us believing in a white Jesus and a white God, the the religion that's forced upon us, the, the homophobia that was never existent. In African society, we were spiritual. We were spiritual. We Wait a minute. Do you practice uh, Yoruba? Sorry? Are you, uh, do you practice uh, Yoruba, the religion, or? I don't. I don't practice any religions, really. I'm okay. like, I'm, I've pulled out from all You're, of it. Are you Yoruba? You no, Yoruba? my family are from Benin City. That's different what I thought, tribe. so it's just a Benin, whole different yeah. tribe. Okay. Different okay. tribe. Okay. Um, but, yeah, like, if you look back in history, homophobia was not existent in Africa. It was all about spirits. They, they, 
you know, there are historical pieces written by white people who came to Africa. They have so what did they do? So what happens okay. now? So now they sell because somebody literally just told me that Ghana just took down the sign at their airport, basically saying, "Don't bring your homosexual, don't bring your American homosexual." Christianity, shit. basically, the, the the Brits came in, the and they were like, "What are you doing? You're you're worshiping these deities, these wooden artifacts. This this stuff that you're doing is wrong. It's disgusting. It's heathen. You will you will you will worship this white Jesus." And they built churches. And they took the land to build these churches and they beat the religion into the people. And it's been passed down for generations. They don't even know where the religion comes from. So the Christianity and all that stuff was not there before. It wasn't there. We worship the land. We worship our own deities. We worship the spirits within people. So yes, there were men that had more feminine energy, but it was no big deal. There were women who had more masculine energy, but people just were, it was all about the spirits of the people. Same thing within the, the indigenous tribes of every country. You know, they had different genders and they, it didn't, it was all about the spirit. And some of these people with different genders or different uh, identities were considered more spiritual than some. They went to, they, they used to go to them for advice and things like that. So this was what it was like before the, the, the white missionaries came. Yeah. And they were like, stop all yeah. of this. Stop all of this. This is heathen. This is animalistic. You will worship our white Jesus. You will go to our churches and we will give you our education. And if you don't do it, we will kill you. So while we're building your churches, we will take every, all your land to build these churches that you did not know you needed and you will worship in them. Yeah. And we may sell some of your family, but that's just how it is. We are bringing you civilization. And that's basically what happened. So the religion that you see is bastardized. It's been used by men to subjugate. This is the same religion that was used to to justify enslaving black people. Oh yeah, I was about to say, you know, yeah, we, we know all about this. Yeah. We, 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 same some religion. To, some of us try to act like we forgot, but yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I'm like, this same religion that you're using to beat people over the head because they're home, this is the same religion that was used to, to subjugate your people for hundreds of years. This is the same, they're the same colonizers that you claim to reject, but you're not rejecting the bullshit that they taught you, you know? When you, when you occasionally bring this up in concert, like when you really get real about the effects of racism, knowing that you have a, a mixed audience, like what's the general reaction and how do you handle it if someone claps back at you? Cause well, I saw Chappelle try to do this once and it didn't work with his sort of drunk frat boy. I'm Rick James bitch audience that was yeah. wanting him to just, you know, just be these, a caricature. Yeah. And, you well, know, he had, he had to turn Dick Gregory on them. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. The audience that tend to come to see me know that I just say what I'm going to say. So right. if you're coming to see me, you know that you're getting what you're getting. Mm. Also, as a comedian, my first port of call is always to entertain. I'm here to make you laugh. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a lecturer. I'm not a, that's not why I'm, I'm here to make you laugh. So yeah. that is always my first port of call. You need to be laughing. Now, if I'm slipping in some politics and slipping in something that's teaching you something, as long as you're laughing, it's mm. all good. So I don't go out there and just go hard and go, oh, yeah. white man is the devil. You, right. I don't do yeah. that. I tell stories. I tell stories of experiences from my life because just by virtue of who I am, I am a walking political statement. So I don't have to make a big deal out going, I'm black, 
I'll just tell stories. I'll tell stories about the racist woman on the train who didn't believe that I belonged in first class. I'll tell the stories of being in the first class lounge at the airport and a guy asking me where the eggs are. I would just tell stories. <laughs> I would tell the stories. Wow. And they learn from the stories. They're laughing, but they're learning at the same time. And that's how I do it. It's like feeding medicine, but you coat it in sugar. So you don't really know you're taking the medicine. And that's uh -huh. how I tend to do it as a stand-up comic. So I don't go... It, it, you know, obviously people still get angry because white people always get angry that you, you got, the, I call them the defensive white people, uh -huh. the DFWs who will get upset with, if, if you just mention race, they're going to get upset and call, I've, had, I've been called racist by someone, you're racist, you're racist, talking about white people, I'm like, talking about racism does not make you racist. You, you, you got to know the difference. You, you're, you're defensive. Mm -hmm. you're, you just, so I'm just like, just get out of my face. But yeah, but an audience who comes to see me know that they're going to have a good time. They're going to laugh a lot mm -hmm. and they may come out with some knowledge, but really they're coming to enjoy a show. And, and, and that's what it's about for me. I know that before uh, a life in comedy, oh, you yeah. were preparing for a life as an engineer. I wasn't preparing. I was an engineer. I worked. Mm -hmm. Right. For, but I mean, well, yeah. What came first? Your need to make people laugh or, you know, I would assume that was it was it a desire to be this engineer or was it like, let me fall back on something? Mm. No, the, the desire to make people laugh. It wasn't a desire. It came out of necessity to avoid fights. I didn't think it was something I could do for a living. I just used that. It was as a defense a, mechanism. Yeah, it was a defense mechanism. Okay. But I come from an African family. We're very academic. So my mom was like, you know, I do a routine on stage where I go, there's four choices of career in an African family. Doctor, lawyer, engineer, disgrace to the family. That's Those are the choices. So I was meant to be the doctor. My mom told me from the age of two that I was going to be a doctor. It wasn't until I got <laughs> to 18 and we had to dissect a rat that I discovered I couldn't stand the sight of blood. So I switched from studying to become a doctor to engineering because that was the next on the list. So, uh, yeah, I became an engineer. I, started, I got my degree in electrical electronics engineering and I became an engineer and I enjoyed the work. I enjoyed being, I was never going to be the best engineer in the world though. I was, mm -hmm. I was, I was okay. I did well. Um, and also I was, you know, my last job was working for Otis, building, repairing elevators. His name was Elijah Otis, the man who supposedly invented the elevator, even though he probably had a black person helping him do that as they did. But the, the guy who is credited with inventing the elevator was a white man. People think he's a black guy because the name Otis, but his name was Elijah Otis. He was a white dude. Okay. But um, I worked for Otis Elevator, building and repairing elevators that as an engineer. And I was their first female engineer in their hundred year history in the UK. Of, of of this company in the UK. And it sounds amazing, but it was not. Uh, I worked on construction sites with white men and I was the only woman engineer and a black engineer in that and the same pay grade as these people while being much younger than all of them. I went through a baptism of fire. Like you're on a construction site, there's no HR. There's no one to say, oh, you're not allowed to say that. I got called the nigger to my face every day at work. I'd come into work and uh, there's pictures of monkeys above my overalls or there's banana skins in the pockets of my overalls and they'd be giggling as I'm taking out these banana skins and throwing them away. This this is what I put up with at work every day for four years. Uh, but, oh yeah, I, I stuck it out because I had to prove that I could do the job. I had to prove to them that they're not going to scare me out of this, that I'm as good as they are. 
And the more they hated me, the more I came into work because they wanted to drive me away and I was not having it. But in the end, I had to pull a guy aside and threaten him with physical violence. I was like, listen, you keep calling me a nigga. I've got two brothers. I'll send these two niggas around your house to fuck you up. I know where you live. Uh, so that if you call me nigga once more, you're a dead man. And that was it. He never spoke to me again. Damn. And work got quieter. But Wait, that was you were my hoping job. He, she did that? Like, I was hoping. I, <laughs> way, I was. I, I, wanted him to meet, I, wanted, right now. I wanted him to meet a nigga. I okay. did. Yeah. yeah, he didn't get to because he, <laughs> he shut his mouth quick. <laughs> he shut his mouth quick when I told him I knew where he lived and I'd send my brothers around there. Uh, so that, but that was what I put up with every day at work. For years. And then the only reason I ended up leaving the job, I was good at the job. The only reason I ended up leaving because I wasn't getting the promotions I was supposed to because I was a woman. I was their first woman. They didn't know what to do with me. That's crazy. So I'd be like, well, I've done this. I've earned this. I've done this promotion. I, 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 I've got the promotion. You give it to me on paper. You've given me the money. Now I'm supposed to run my own site because when you get to a certain level, you then manage your own site. And they were like, well... We don't have to date the, ge- the geezers. We don't know if the guys are going to listen to a bird. You know what I mean? Don't think they're going to they're gonna listen to a girl giving them orders. So we'll give you the promotion, we'll give you the money, but uh, we, 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 you can't manage your own site. So I was like, well, then this is not good. I, I'm going to go to a grievance hearing. So I set up a hearing. hearing. My union that I've been paying into for four years refused <laughs> to represent me. My union rep was mm. like, ah, we don't know about this women stuff, so you're on your own. So I turned up for this grievance hearing, unrepresented by my union. So here I am, 21-year-old black girl, in a room with these old white men who run, who are at the top of the company. And obviously I lost. They were like, yeah, we don't see we're doing anything wrong. Get out of here. So in the end, I was like, I'm out of this job. They were, you know, in the mid-90s, they were making people redundant. The building industry went through a bit of a slump. They were laying people off. They were never going to lay me off because I was their black poster child. But I just marched into my manager's office and I was like, you better pay me off and let me go or else I'm going to go public with this shit. So they were like, all right, here's your money. Off you go. And it was in that time that I fell into comedy because I was like, let me take a t- little bit of time out of engineering. Let me have some fun. Let me go do. Some- you had a little cushion. Yeah, I had a little cushion. I had money. I had a little uh, apartment with my, my rent was cheap. My car was bought cash. I had this nice little nest egg of money. So I lived off that money. And it was in that time that I fell into comedy and just ended up never going back to engineering. Around what year was that? I'd say 90, I started doing comedy in 96. So yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. damn. Okay. Yeah. All right. So at the time, who were you laughing at? Like, who was making you laugh? Funny enough, I never really watched comedy before I did it. Oh. I'm not one of those comedians that, that's got an encyclopedic knowledge of yeah. comedy. I, I like to watch my peers. I never watched a lot because I tried to watch Richard Pryor videos, but by, when I came, I'd seen so many comedians yeah. doing versions of his stuff that by the time I saw him, I was like, yeah. like I've seen yeah. this. And it sounds horrible to say this publicly. No, yeah, that's I've real. Never, I've never watched an entire Richard Pryor special because I felt like I'd seen it because I'd seen bastardized yeah. versions of it. Right. So often. Yeah, Pryor is one of those dudes, like I always compare him to like, he's kind of like what Dilla, what Jay Dilla was to music in the sense that you're trying to explain him, you had to be there and trying to explain him to people now they don't understand it like yo before this guy happened yeah. all this shit that y'all rocking to now like that shit just did not exist you know yeah. what i mean and yeah it's hard yeah. to explain that to people you know and yeah. richard Pryor, he was kind of like that when i would watch him you know yeah. all my uncles and shit be laughing at him but i'd be like huh you know what i mean right. yeah yeah it was, 
Sorry, I was going to ask about no, Moms Mabley, and, and I was curious if you ever... No, I, I mean, I've gone back and researched it. That's since. what I meant, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I've gone back and gone, oh, Moms but Like, we didn't have Moms Mabley in England. Right. We would not have known who she was. Right. It's only when I moved to America that I started looking at the history of, of black comedy in America. I mean, we had Eddie Murphy, obviously, in England. He was huge. He was a worldwide superstar. So mm-hmm. I saw Raw, you know? we Everybody saw that. And then we used to get the VHS tapes of the, the, the Deaf Comedy Jams. So we got that. Oh, okay. So we got Dev Comedy Jam in England. We all watched the, you know. So when I ended up doing Dev Comedy Jam, all the black British comics were like, "Oh my god, you're doing that!" It was a <laughs> massive thing because we'd all been sneaking and watching the the VHSs of Dev Comedy Jam. So, but when I came to America, that's when I started. You know, Chris Rock. We knew who Chris Rock again. You know, we got all the movies. He came there too. Yeah. Yeah, he came and toured, yeah. so we knew who Chris Rock was. Uh, Chappelle Show came later on. We we did get Chappelle Show, but I never watched Chappelle Show. I never watched it because it was at that time when I was I don't know when was Chappelle Show. It was like two thousand three, two thousand two, two thousand three. So I was already in comedy in England, just hustling, hustling. Working. So I never really right. watched a lot. I never really so I've seen I've never seen all of I've seen clips of the Chappelle Show on the internet, but I never I was not really watching TV like that. I've never so, even watched the, the Fresh Prince. I know I've watched clips of it. I've seen it. I know the show. I know what it's about. I watched the documentary of it. But when it was on, I never actually watched the show. Yeah, once you see in a few clips, you've seen them all. <laughs> I'm playing. No, well, okay. So from my observation, you know, when I'm watching uh, people talk about English comedy, of course, Faulty Towers and Monty Python and whatnot. White oh, what, what did black people, <laughs> would you say? <laughs> white English comedy. When they say English comedy, it usually means white people. Mm-hmm. I get it. But okay. what were black people holding on to as far as comedy was concerned in the late 60s, early 70s? Like, what was Monty Python for Not black nothing. people? Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Really? I didn't give a shit about Monty Python. I never found it funny. I didn't get it. was just a bunch of very wealthy middle class white guys. This is how Monty Python sounded to me. <laughs> That's all it sounds like to me. I just, I never watched it as a kid. I didn't get it. You know, I just didn't get it. Um, I didn't get much about it. Well, Benny Hill. I Benny kinda, Hill, I was I, just thinking that. But yeah. Benny Hill was physical comedy. Right. Exactly. I was a kid so, watching that and it yeah, was funny. Yeah, as a kid, I, mean? I watched that. I mean, as a kid, it there is. was a guy called Kenny Everett who I found hilarious. If you ever look up clips of this guy on, on YouTube, Kenny Everett, hilarious. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hilarious. He was funny and, and he was who I watched on TV. We had uh, Lenny Henry, who was our black comedian. He okay. was okay. He, one top black comedian in the UK. So we watched a lot of his stuff, a lot of scare. So we had stuff, we had, you know, we had a lot of t- we had TV shows with Caribbean actors on it. So we had our shows, but as, as far as black comics in the 60s, a lot of the black comics in the 60s did very self-deprecating humor that was for white audiences. You know, they do- Similar was, to our minstrel comedy for America. Very much, yeah, very much. They so you guys say, had, there was a version of that for the UK as well? Oh yeah, the, the black and white minstrel show was a British show. Uh, yeah, it was on in the UK. And then we also had black, yeah. And uh, so Lenny Henry, he was our one black comic and uh, black people looked at him sideways for a long time because he did appear in the minstrel show. But he was a young black comic, there was nothing out there. He was the one and he just did what he was told to do. But yeah, yeah. he did appear in the, min- the minstrel show. So black people were like, for a long time. So what year did the minstrel sh- show stop in the UK? Not for a long time. Did it 
It Damn. went on for, I didn't, I think it stopped. I think it didn't even stop till like the early nights. It went on for a long time. I, I, I might be exaggerating, but I know it was on for a very long time. Whoa. It stopped way after it should have stopped. All <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Okay. Way yeah. past the sell by date. Well, well by. <laughs> way past. So how, do, how does one cut their teeth and navigate through the 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 early uh, structure of trying to be a comedian like well, in the- what what clubs and like how are you able to do that and also you know were they open to you being a a a, a woman a black person how hard was it to sort of rub shoulders and when I started in comedy in the nineties, there had been there was a burgeoning black comedy scene. There was a huge, you know, there were, it was very segregated. So we had a black comedy scene which was made up of theaters, black run theaters. There were lots of good underground roots theaters around the country, and there was a promoter called John Simmett who used to put on shows all around, and he used to bring over American comics to do our shows. Like I met JB Smooth. Um, oh wow. Uh, Twenty. Five years ago, Ian Edwards, I met all of these guys 20 odd years ago when I was starting out in England. I went to see them at theatres in England in the 90s before they became huge. So this guy, John Simmett, was putting on all these shows. So there was a really good comedy scene, not in comedy clubs, it was theatres, it was events. The black scene was an event. They put in their face on the flyer and people came and got dressed up and it was a big event. So that's where I started doing comedy on the black scene. The white comedy scene was mainly comedy clubs and there were a lot of them all over the country. So you could make, the black scene paid more money because it was more of an event, but there weren't as many of them. So you might get one, you know, we might get one show every couple of weeks paying 300 bucks, whereas on the white circuit, they paid less money, but you got a lot of work if you got into the clubs. Um, I've always made a point of playing both sets, playing the black scene and the white scene immediately from the beginning. I was like, I want to be funny to everybody and I want to make all the money because I'm a Nigerian. So that's how I thought I want to make all the money. (laughs) So I want to do all the clubs. So I made a point of playing both. People used to say, are you going to go do the white circuit? You're a sellout, whatever. But I never sold myself out. I always was pretty much quintessentially me when I did those shows. So yeah, and that's what I did. Uh, it was hard, it was a struggle. It was a struggle getting on at those clubs because they didn't respect black comedy. They always thought that black comics were this. It, the same as it is in America, the assumption that every black comic is a Def Jam comic or every black comic talks a certain way. That's how it was in England. They thought that all we talked about is our parents beating us or whatever. So it was a struggle getting on at those clubs, but I worked here and you know, I did. I, I, I kept hustling and kept festering these clubs and I, I did get on, but you know, it was hard getting on TV. I was always the token, always right. the token. I was okay. always on TV. I was on all manner of TV shows. You know, I was famous for being that black girl that's on every show in England. Mm. Never okay. had my own show. <laughs> so when these shows got accused of racism, they go, but no, no, we're not racist. Look, we, we, we had Gina. Gina. We've had Gina on our show eight times. So I realized I was being used as a token to keep other black people down. So I was like, I've got to get out of here. I've got to get out of here. <laughs> I, a, wait, I, a, I I was told that uh, I was trying to figure out in American comedy when blacks are trying to get to that mainstream level, um, like, you know, how do you get out of what we call the Chitlin circuit into mainstream comedy? Some black comedians joke with me. The one thing you can't do when you decide to go mainstream is I guess the common denominator is amongst comedians is uh you're deaf you're deaf jam comic if you're fucking the chair 
So <laughs> it's a lot of chair humping. A lot of chair humping. Exactly. So what what is the what's the sort of the signature kind of blanket move for black comics in the UK that sort of well, a lot of black comics in the UK kind of model themselves on the Def Jam comics. So there was also some stool humping oh. in England as well. But black um, people fuck like this. White people fuck like this. Yeah. When, when I started doing comedy, um, when I started doing comedy, you know, I was the only comedian of African descent that was really doing it. A lot, 90% of the comedians were Caribbean descent. So a lot of their jokes were doing jokes at the expense of Africans. So when I came out, I was coming from a different perspective. So that made me stand out immediately from everybody else. Because I was like, yeah, you guys are talking about Africans. Let me tell Jamaicans, let me tell you about yourselves. Bayesians, let me tell you about yourselves. And so I was coming from that perspective. And I, and I did material about being an African kid and, and the experiences at school. Being So I came from that perspective. So it made me stand out, made me different, and it made me successful earlier because I was coming, I was very different from everybody else. But then what happened was I started a trend <laughs> because <laughs> I, I was able to parlay that into mainstream success on television, talking about my African heritage on British television. Then I started a whole stream of young comics of African descent who were like, oh, we could talk about being African. And then it almost became hack because I was doing characters, my African characters, which were characters well written. But a lot of these younger comics were just coming out and go, look, I can talk in an African accent. And it's really funny. And oh. people were laughing at that. So then it became hacky. Yeah. Was I was going to ask, uh, you, you, you mentioned um, the, the Lenny Henry uh, yes. show earlier, and that's where you did more uh, of your sketch, your, your, your character actors. How did yeah. you develop? Um, Tanya, the one of your more famous characters, yeah. Tanya, and uh, and I love the fact that you wore a, a bootleg Allen Iverson uh, <laughs> <laughs> jersey. I'm from Philly, and the uh, the other character, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Amokrade. Yeah, how did you develop those characters for that show? Well, Mrs. Amokrade was based on my mom, so I'd been doing okay. various uh, versions of her in my stand up before that. So all I did was just make her a person and put, and put the wig on and actually encapsulate the character. Tanya was based on the young girls I used to see on the buses and see on the streets when I used to hang out and I used to listen to their conversations and their voices and stuff. So, but when they called me on the show, uh, they called me to be a writer. They didn't call me to be on the show. Oh, on the show, okay. They wanted me to write on the show. And I was like, well, I write on the show, but the characters that I you know, that I, I come up with, I want to play them. That's the only reason I'm going to, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a comedian, I'm a performer. I don't want to just write sketches and be in the background. So I was like, if I write on the show, but if I create these characters, I want to play them. And that's basically how I got on the show as a writer and performer. And lucky I did because those characters catapulted me to mainstream success. Up until that Lenny Henry show, I was what you call hood famous. Because I'd done a black TV show and I was famous to black audiences. So when I was selling out theatres, it was all black. But then when I got on the Lenny Henry show, that was mainstream BBC television in the UK. And my audience changed. I, be I started to pick up a much bigger and broader audience, which I still hold to this day. So I still kept my black roots because I never changed who I was. But then white people came on board. Oh, word. Mm. So I know eventually you came stateside what was the what was the decision process to leave 
the UK to move uh, to America? Well, I wanted to be in uh, America since I was a child. Uh, since watching Different Strokes, I was like, uh, I want to go to America and be adopted by a rich white man and have a white maid. Like, it was my dream. I used to watch all the TV shows. I'm like, kids in America, they've got better candies than us. They've got better clothes than us. They've got better bikes. They can go around and solve crimes and shit. I want to be an American kid. Yeah, so when I was four years old, from four years old, I used to say to my mum, like, why, why did you come here? So I never felt British. I was like, why did you come here? Like you could have gone, to, I could have been born in Miami. Like what were you thinking? So it's been a dream. Like even when I worked for Otis as an engineer, Otis is an American company. True. So all my life I was planning to come to America. Even when I was working as an engineer, I was like, I'm gonna work for an American company. And at some point I'm going to transfer and be an engineer in America. So it's been my dream to live here my entire life. How I got here as a comedian, last comic standing. Uh, yeah. I saw it as a chance to get to America. And so I auditioned for the show and got to the, fi- the semi-final and they got me a two-year work visa. And I was like, oh, does this mean I can live and work in America for two years? Oh, well, I'm done. Went back to England, sold my house, sold and gave away everything I owned and turned up for the semi-final of Last Comic Standing with just two suitcases to my name. And threw a big party in England, said, I'm leaving, I ain't coming back goodbye i know it's only a two-year visa but i'm going to turn this into a green card and then i'm going to turn it into (laughs) citizenship i am never coming back into a dynasty nice there you go and i've been here 14 years (laughs) so so wait is that for real like before you came here you you saw all the like the beauty of america but you had no idea of like what it what was really going on and the history oh i I knew what was going on but the same shit was happening in england so i was like I'm just, there's no difference to me. I'm just going from, you know, as a comedian in England, a black comic, I was, I was well known. I'd hit, I'd got quite famous, but I'd hit that glass ceiling, hit the glass ceiling of of where black people are allowed to reach in, in English entertainment industry. So I was like, well, America's got a black ceiling, but it's a lot higher. So at least when I hit the black ceiling, the the glass ceiling in America, uh, I'll be a multimillionaire when I hit it and I can cry in my money. So that was my idea. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Because you are the queen. You are the queen of comedy in London. There ain't like queens of comedy. Yeah, I am the, the, you know, I am the most, you know, well-known black female comedian. I love it. I love it. Or one of the most well-known comedians standard in England. But I was here and my white male counterparts here. So I'm here and I'm doing pretty well. I've got, you know, I'm doing well. But then these white guys that who opened for me, and then going boom and becoming stadium filling multimillionaires. And I'm like, wait, a year ago you were opening for me. How am I still here? And you're here. I need to get out of here. I need to go and and, and swim with the sharks in America. This Damn. is mind blowing because I'm thinking to myself, like, you're so now that she is, so now that you're here, and this is a different time now. It's a time mm-hmm. now where you know, in Hollywood, it makes more sense for you to be black and British, black and African descent. You know, like a lot of people, there's an issue uh, that people speak about sometimes that you are first choice when it comes to roles a lot of times. Like, what is, what is your view on that? I don't think that's true, though. Okay, talk about it. Talk about it, yeah. Look, here's the thing with the whole African-American versus Africans and all, or or versus Brits thing. Mm -hmm. If there were enough roles, enough well-rounded three-dimensional roles for black actors in America, we wouldn't be fighting over these crumbs. We're fighting over crumbs. And here's the thing. I say, they say that British black actors are first choice. No, they're not. How many African-American characters have played Nelson Mandela? How many? 
How many? Only three. Washington played Steve Biko. Uh, All our African heroes have been played by African-American actors. But yeah. we didn't complain. Yeah, we true. just were happy that our story... Yeah. Terrence Howard played. even played Nelson Mandela. Well, that's oh, what I forgot. No. I mean, wait, you didn't have to say wait, that, Fonte. You didn't have to remind us. Wait, he did? Well, he there was a yeah. He was he was him and uh and Jennifer Hudson played Winnie. It was yeah. like the, wait what the Winnie movie. It was the Winnie movie. So. Yeah, yeah, it was. Did he that, say it was. Man, no, Mandela. Man, <laughs> y'all want me to end apartheid, man? <laughs> but that's what that's what I'm saying. What what is the big complaint? What is the big complaint? Cross-pollination. Like we had a show, we had a movie in England called For Queen and Country. It was a movie about a British soldier coming out of the For army. Queen and Country. I remember this movie. Yeah. Denzel like, is... Washington played yeah, that yep. British soldier. They, of all the black actors in England, they went to America and brought Denzel Washington to England to play the role of this British soldier. Man. Uh, so it's cross pollen. This is, you know, the, the, all these complaints. He, play, he played Steve Biko too. He was Steve yeah, Biko. He, he, yeah, I said that earlier. He played Steve yeah. Biko. So all our African heroes have been played by African Americans. Well, well, now it's y'all turn. Yeah, now it's y'all turn. The way I see it, I see everybody's it. As, English. Yeah, everybody's English. from the UK. Right? Well, Harriet Martin. I mean, she. <laughs> uh, did they do the role justice? That's yes, all. For, that's do. where I'm at with it too. It, they bodied the shit. It depends all. on the movie. They do the role it, justice. It depends yeah. on. That's the all you got to ask. You yeah. got. That's all you got to. You know. Look, Will Smith played a Nigerian doctor in oh. horrible. Tell the truth. Why'd you have to mention look, that? I Tell love Will truth. Smith. I love Will Smith, but that was horrible. Just horrible. Black Panther. I love Black Panther. That was the, 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 the I love that movie. But every member of that family had a different African accent. <laughs> different African accent. But, I, Forrest Whitaker uh, had my you, favorite why you one. Ruin this story? I blame I blame Lupita. She should have told taught everybody correctly. I don't know. <laughs> is that, I think that's on her. Yeah, that's I, not on it's her. A, it's a bad. No, it's a bad joke. I, I, yeah, I was like, I, here's I the thing. She like, <laughs> Well, that's what I'm saying. Look, I tell you a little story. When I came to meet Chuck Lorre to create Bob Hart Savishola, I asked them what they wanted the African character to be called, and one of the guys said. Lupita, and I was like, okay, stop. Oh, hell no. Oh, what? Here's the thing. I was like, this is why you guys need me. Uh, for one, Lupita is Kenyan. You're talking about Nigerian characters, she's Kenyan. Wrong side of Africa. Wrong side of Africa. Two, she was born in Mexico. Her parents, for shits and giggles, gave her the name Lupita. I can pretty much guarantee there's not another fucking African on the planet. <laughs> so here we go. Let yeah. me give you a list of Nigerian names. Let me help you. Let, let's, let's make this authentic. Let's make this good. <laughs> thank you guys. And thank you. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. 
I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I was about to say, I don't, I don't even want to skip this far into it, but I had a friend that used to act on uh, Two and a Half Men, and I went to the set to visit just to see like what the atmosphere was like. And, mm-hmm. you know, Chuck Lorre shows are it's the most intense atmosphere I've ever seen as far as a comedy show is concerned. Like I never I didn't know he was that hands on. I didn't know that every time they yell break, the writers run around. All right. Give me a better, better punchline. Go. No, you're horrible. Go. <laughs> no, you suck. Wait, wait, you <laughs> like I never knew it was that cutthroat. That's Chuck Lorre doing that? Is that Chuck yeah, Lorre? It's, it's not as bad on our show. Uh, uh, he's mellowed with age. <laughs> and also, because I'm running the show with Al Higgins and him, it our atmosphere is a lot more chill. It's mm-hmm. a lot, you know, I brought black writers in, you know, like... I, well, they need you to make it work, so I doubt it. But I'm just saying that what I saw... I was high pressure. It's like the, every it's time the they NBA take a of sitcoms. It's the NBA. It is. Like every time they take a break, and I could tell what the what the what not the lineage, but I could tell the order of like mm. the 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 respected writer versus the newbie because you're mm. supposed to form a circle around him, and he's like, I don't like that punchline. Give me some of that works. Go, and <laughs> if you don't if you don't nail bullseye with bullseye with the, <laughs> with the right punchline, he'll be like, nah, that sucks. You you and I'm just seeing like people getting deflated every time they don't come with the magic. Oh, yeah. I Chuck, didn't realize this. Chuck does not through. suffer fools gladly. Um, luckily, right. I'm a stand-up, uh, and I came in with that confidence of a stand-up. And, mm. and you know, look, not every one of your jokes is going to work. It's the it's the not showing fear when it doesn't. Oh my god! Oh my god! It didn't work. I've got to think of something quick. I've got to. And these guys who just talk incessantly because they're trying desperately to impress. Mm-hmm. You, you just got to be chill. Like, he likes me because I'm chill around him. I'm just like, here's a joke. No, that didn't work. Okay, give me a couple minutes. Give me a couple minutes. And I'm well, quite relaxed about the whole thing. That's why I wanted to ask you, because in that particular atmosphere, in that particular day that I saw, I just don't know how one can be creative when they're, they all look like they were, 
like have their heads in the guillotine. The gun. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm like, well, how how can you come with something creative when you're under such duress? And I wanted to know, was it like that on the set as well? Like, no. Where- our set is a fun set. Before we do our run throughs and rehearsals, I put on Afro beats. We dance. Yes. Yes. I put on music. Like if you look at my stories and stuff, you'll see uh, me and the cast, the crew, all of us, we put the music on, we fuck it and we dance. I'm like, let's go. Just get the energy, just get, it's fun. This is fun. We're playing make-believe, like people. This is not rocket science. This is not surgery. So I put music on, we dance, we have, we have fun. And uh, the writer's room is a really nice collaborative feel. And, and, and Chuck likes the room that we're running and Chuck comes in and he loves coming and hanging with us. And it doesn't feel high pressure. We're talking, we don't write. Cause the show, if you watch Bob Hart's Happy Show, like it's not a joke heavy show. It's funny mm-hmm. and we aim for the funny, but we also aim for the real heart, the real story, the real three dimensions of all the characters. So it's not just joke, give me a joke. We need a joke right now, we need a joke. You know, the funny comes, we concentrate, Chuck has now taught us, taught us, look, we concentrate on the story, make it real, and then you can add in the jokes later. So, you know, I've learned a lot since in that show, but we haven't got that kind of high intensity uh, thing going on. We, we all, it's a collaborative thing. Everybody works together. We break, you know, and, 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 you know, I've had people come up to me after the season and go, look, this is one of the best sets I've ever worked on because your energy is positive and fine and you keep it light and it's not high pressure and we enjoy coming to work. So, that's what I'm trying to do. I, I was going to yeah. say, if if it wasn't desirable, I think we would have heard it from you right now in your your comedy. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> I've, got a whole, I've got a whole routine about how this show came about. Them finding me on Google, all of that. I've got a whole routine about it. Chuck has heard it, and he's like, "Oh God." <laughs> so, I you know I I also want to you know commend you on. You know I know that the rule of comedy is supposed to be like tragedy plus time equals humor, or mm-hmm. I guess that's the, the, the formula, but you know, all of your subject matters, you somehow find the, the seriousness in things that are like, you know, the, you leave nothing, no stone unturned. Like you talk about <laughs> sleep, sleep apnea, you talk about lupus, <laughs> Oh, wow. you know, coming out to your family, all these things. How did you, where did you get to the place where it was like, because you, I think you have to not care in order for your world to open up. Like usually, if people are super guarded and yeah, that sort of thing, then you're not going to work. But to you have to get to the point where you you don't give a shit anymore. Yeah, where, it, where it did you? A long time. Long when time. did you reach that level? Not that long ago. You know, I wasn't out for a very long time because I was like, I'm a black woman in this industry. I don't look a certain way. Like do I really want to give them something else to box me in with? So for a long time, I did not talk about my sexuality at all. I avoided the question. I never lied, but I always circumvented the questions. They asked the questions, I'd be like, mm, yeah, yeah. I was doing this stuff. So it, at the beginning of my career, it helped me because I had to think outside the box as far as material was concerned. Because when everybody else was talking about relationships, I had to go, right, let me think of, let me, let me just think of other material. So it made my material stand out because I wasn't one of those women talking about relationships. I wasn't talking about that stuff. But then after years, I, I, it was like a straitjacket because I couldn't really open up and be completely myself on stage mm-hmm. because I was holding back a facet of my personality. 
And I didn't really come out till I started touring. I was on tour with Cat Williams and I was touring with oh, a man. young, oh yeah, I was there for the crazy. I was there on a, on a private jet with uh with suge knight i was there for all of that what uh, okay. yeah. yo okay you gotta you gotta go tell back. that story all you gotta that tell that story. crazy shit that was happening i was there for all of it all of it uh but i was on tour i'll tell you that i'll come back to that okay, but i was on cool. tour and i was on tour with a young comedian called shantae wayans who's she's part of the wayans dynasty Shante wayans, yeah, yeah, yeah and she's a lesbian comic and i loved how unapologetic she was on stage and i remember watching her thinking and envying her thinking that's what you do. Just be on stage and be yourself. Doesn't matter. And it got to the point where, you know, I'd, I'd done all the things that I'm supposed to do. Be happy, smiley, non-threatening Gina for years to try and get on. And it hadn't worked. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do me. I'm going to just do me. And I just, and I didn't make a big deal out of coming out. I just slipped a joke in here and there, slipped a line in here and there. I didn't make a big deal of it because... It's just one facet of my personality. Just, but it, yeah, just, it doesn't totally define you. Exactly. But it just means that I was completely open and there was nothing I was hiding and my comedy got better. How did that just, feel? Like having that realization, oh, how did it feel? So good. And I just like, why did I wait so long? Like, oh my God, I wish I'd done this years ago. But when I, you know, back, people going, oh, you're, you know, your black audience will desert you because, you know, black people are homophobic. No, and so people were telling bullshit. me that. But it is because I'm like, look, uh, I built up a reputation of being a really good comic and really funny. And so people like me, even if you don't, well, then off you go. Uh, for every one person I lose, I gain another five. So, yeah, so I wish I'd done it years ago. But yeah, it, good. You know, I'm glad I did. But as for Cat Williams, yeah, I was on tour <laughs> 2012. And, you know, Cat, one of the most generous, giving, Supportive people, smartest people I've ever met. Yes. Yeah. Like, if you Talk watch his comedy, it. take out all the motherfuckers. The guy is a genius. No, Cat is brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant, I tell you. Yeah, they just let the pimp shit get in the way, but that. Yeah, no, but if you yeah. peel away all of that, mm -hmm. highly intelligent man. High, we had wonderful conversations, yeah. but I'd have wonderful conversations, and the next day he was like, I'm like, hey, Cat. And he was just. <laughs> So I was like, I don't know what's going on, but you know, I just, he respected me because again, I didn't kiss ass. I didn't, you know, but yeah, I was on that tour with Suge Knight. Uh, you know, I was left on stage doing hour and a half sets because he, I tell you, I tell you one story. That, that, that wow. Encapsulate the craziness. Okay. And at the time, show, did you have an hour and a half? Did you have an oh, hour yeah, and a half of oh, material? Yeah, yeah. Okay, no, yeah, no, okay, cool. I was like, was it just crowd work or, okay. Yeah. Oh no, I've been in comedy since 96. I already had. The queen. In 2012, comedy. I'd already <laughs> shot two specials. So yeah. Ah, okay, gotcha, gotcha. I had the material. Uh, let me tell you the story and encapsulate the whole thing. So I'm on tour. I mean, very generous. The first time Cat was taking me on tour, and he calls me up. He, you know, the first time I met Cat, I'm in New York. It's the New York Comedy Festival. Cat is appearing at the Carnegie Hall, sold out. And I'm going just to watch the show because my friend Will Sylvince was opening for him. So I'm turning up at the theatre. I'm about to walk in the front to watch the show. Will Sylvance calls me. Where are you? And I'm like, I'm about to walk in the theatre and take my seat. He goes, come around to the stage door. So I come around to the stage door and they go, Cat's not here. He's been arrested on the way to the show. So can you go up and do 20 minutes? And I'm like, Carnegie Hall? Fuck yeah. <laughs> 
So Will went on, did his time, then I went on and did mine and killed. And towards the end of my set, Cat Williams had been released by the police and he made it and caught, caught the end of my set. And afterwards he was like, I like you, I'm going to take you on tour. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I've heard that shit before, whatever. And I, and I was visiting New York from LA, so I was staying at Will's house. The next day I get a call from the woman who books Cat shows and she's like, uh, so, uh, Gina, you did kind of, you hope for Cat, Cat really likes you, he wants to take you, he's doing, what's that place in Jersey that's supposed to be like Vegas, but it's not? Um, Atlantic City. Oh, Atlantic City, Atlantic City. Right. <laughs> yeah. He goes, Cat's doing Atlantic City tonight, he wants you to open for him. How much did they pay you? Uh, to for for Carnegie Hall. Now they didn't pay me a penny. I just went up and did twenty minutes, but I wasn't going to say that. So I was like, two thousand dollars. And she goes, <laughs> done. We'll see you tonight. And a car, Mercedes, turned up twenty. And I was like, fuck! I should have said eight. Anyway, so, <laughs> <laughs> so the car picked me up and took me to Atlantic City, and I opened for Cat at Atlantic City. And uh, he's the, his backstage was like a scene out of New Jack City. Remember when they had the naked girls just counted money? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. That's because Cat used to insist that you go get the cash from the box office and pay him. So they used to have wow. to get the cat, box up, let me count. And the, so all these girls would be just there, just counting all these money and go, bitch, pay Gina. And then oh. the girl would just come over with them. <laughs> Come over with oh, you mean that New wish. Jack City scene? Oh, yeah. Them skin then, milk and them titties. Of course y'all remember. Oh, I can't. I used so, to yeah. date that girl, yo. <laughs> with the skin milk in her titties? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. So yeah, they, they, he paid me cash and then he just he said, I'm going to take you on tour. And he, I was like, bet. So he calls me up, Cat calls me up and he goes, uh, Okay, so I'm going to take you on tour. I've got a hundred day books around, booked around the country. We're going to make a load of money. How much do you get paid? So I was like, I was like, ah. Uh, so I was thinking, if I say three thousand, he'll knock me down to two. Okay. I'll get two grand a show, hundred shows. I'm set. So I go mm-hmm. three thousand, and Cat goes, I'll give you five. I'll see you next on Saturday. And I was like, what? <laughs> Mm-hmm. And uh, when I first met up with Cat on the tour, I says, I asked for three. Why would you give, why did you say uh, you'll give me five? And he goes, because I know how good you are. He goes, I know how good. Know your worth, Gina. Know your worth. You're worth more than that. And you're better than that. And 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 he paid me 5,000 shows. Now, I was yeah, like, well. oh, my days, 100 shows. I'm going to make half a million dollars. But after that first show, I was like, oh, we're not going to make it to three shows. <laughs> this is a <laughs> And so it was Suge, was Suge Knight touring? Was he, he was Shug rolling Knight, with y'all? Yeah, Suge Knight was touring with us. So let me tell you this quick story. So first night, we're in Denver. We do the show. Packed out. Do the show. I do my set. I kill, have fun. Sean Taylor does a set. It's great. Cat goes on and it's a crazy show. Put it that way. It was when he was not having good shows. Okay. Didn't go well. Um, go backstage. Um... <laughs> And he goes to the promoter, go, the Live Nation was talk, was doing the show. Mm-hmm. He goes to the promoter, go go get my money. And they're going, look, people are walking out and they're demanding their money back, so we can't give you the money. And I'm like, and and Kat's like, go get my motherfucking money. And I'm like, oh God, about to go. And I turn around and I don't even know what happened. I turn around and I just hear, 
And I turn back and the Live Nation guy is on the floor and I'm like, oh God, I've got to get out of here. I've got to get out of here. Put it this way, the Live Nation guy got punched in the face. I'm not going to say who did it. I didn't see it. I turned around. I just heard a noise. And then, and he was, and then you saw uh, he was on the ground. Got so it. I was like, oh God, this is crazy. Uh, this is this tour is not, I'm not going to make half a million dollars. I will but, be lucky but they if can't I make his, But they can't get his money that night though? Oh, he got his money. Okay. So, because oh, that was the show in so that was the next day that was Denver the next day we're supposed to be in Sacramento so they go right uh, meet us all in the lobby at 9am the plane we'll get on the plane we'll go to Sacramento cool we're in the lobby 9am 10am 11am 12pm we're all just sitting in the lobby for hours and I'm like where's Kat what's going on so I'm like I go up to his room (laughs) I just knock on the door yo Kat uh We've been downstairs for four hours. What's happening? I'm like, no way. We'll be dancing. So he sends me out. And I'm like, what is going on? Anyway, uh, I was like, are we going to miss these flights? And the woman who's booking the show is like, oh, no, it's a private jet. They're waiting for us on the runway. Anyway, they charged Cat $30,000 in late fees. I remember that. Uh, We get to the runway. So we all get in the convoy. Uh, You know, they put our luggage in all the cars. We all go to the the runway where the, the jet is waking. Wait, we get on the jet. I'm on the jet with Suge Knight, Bishop Magic Don Juan. Is that what yes, you yes, yes. Yeah, green is for the money, gold is for the honey. Yeah, yeah. I'm on a jet with them and cats, kids, and a bunch of other people. And everybody's like, where's Cat? Where's Cat? Why is he? And I was like, he was in the car just behind us. I don't know, where's Cat? This was at four o'clock in the afternoon at this point. The show in Sacramento was in seven, at seven. We are in Denver. Oh. Shows in Sacramento. And I go, where, go where Kat, where's Cat? Where's Cat? Cat has decided he's going to drive oh my from God. Denver to Sacramento. So I'm like, maybe I don't know America that well. Let me Google. Hello, Google. Um, how long does it take to drive? <laughs> I'm doing that right now. From. Denver to Sacramento, and I remember it going, that, it was like, oh, it will be 19 hours or something like that. And I was like, we're not going to make the show. It's four o'clock, the show's at seven. What is, so we sat on the runway and we trying to get hold of cat. So in the end, the pilot goes, listen, we got to go. Otherwise this flight is done. We got to take off. So we take off with our cat and we had to divert the plane halfway through the journey to go pick up cat in the middle of the desert somewhere. <laughs> we had to divert the plane and land <laughs> and pick up Cat. Cat gets on the plane and he's furious at us. I don't know what was going on. He gets on the plane and he's like, you motherfucker. And just cursing. And I'm sitting there like, what the hell is, what the hell is going on? What is going on right now? He thought he was going to make it. Yeah. So we get to, oh my God. we get to Sacramento. We are two hours late for the show. Now, John Witherspoon, God bless him. God rest his soul yeah. was also on the tour. But John Witherspoon had learned early on in the tour, you're not not to get on a plane with Kat. He was like, uh, I'll get my own jet there. I'll meet you at the gig. So John was already at the gig. But unfortunately, they told John, oh, yeah, Kat's on his way. Just go on stage. Stretch. Oh, God. He'd been on stage two hours when we got there. When we got there, oh my poor, God. poor Mr. Witherspoon had swept through his entire suit. <laughs> he was on stage for two hours to do, and when we got there, he had two girls on stage doing a dance competition because he'd run out of jokes. He, he ran like, out oh, of shit. Yeah, just, bang he, bang he, hour. He came up and he was like, "Motherfucker!" <laughs> oh my god, yo, this is now, now, 
Please bearing don't be mind, bearing in mind, my stuff was still in the convoy, so I had to go on stage at this theatre to ten thousand people, wearing a t-shirt, no bra, jeans, and flip flops, because my clothes were still in the convoy, driving right. halfway across the country right. somewhere. So that was the second night. So I was like, oh, this isn't gonna work. But after every night, they paid me my five thousand cash. So at one point, I did three shows. I had fifteen thousand dollars, and I was like, Shugna and his boys. I don't, I don't want them to come in my hotel room in the middle of the night and dangle me out of the window for this money. So as soon as we got to the next town, I run straight to the chase, like, um, the bank, yeah. can I put this money in the bank? And they're all looking at me like I'm a drug dealer because I've got a pile of cash. Right, this time. right, yeah. Like, can, I, can I pay this in, please? Like, <laughs> and they were looking at me like, and they're counting the money, just looking at me sideways. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was a crazy tour. You know, I was there in Seattle. The next night was in Seattle. Again, Kat got arrested on the way to the show. So oh my God. I, Will Savinst did an hour set. I did an hour set. John Witherspoon did an hour set. And by three hours in, the crowd is like, what is yeah, going on? Yeah, they're done. Yeah. And um, the, cr- the crowd started to destroy the theatre. Like, it was a beautiful mm. theatre in Seattle. The crowd went mad because Kat oh. had been arrested on the way. It was crazy. And the next day, we were supposed to be in Texas. And, Good God, uh, who routed this tour? You I know, see, I got on a Texas. I know we were in Texas the next day. Ten thousand people sold out. The people who ran, who ran the fair, the venue were like, "We ain't opening these doors, right?" Till we know that 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 the cat is in the city because we heard about what happened in Seattle. We heard about what happened in Sacramento. We ain't opening these doors. And the tour manager's like, "Oh no, no, cat's on his way." But cat is still in freaking. Kat is still in California. He ain't even left yet. <sighs> They're like, no, he's checked into a hotel. And, and the guy's like, no, he hasn't, because we called all the hotels in the area and he's not there. So we ain't open. In fact, if he ain't here by seven o'clock, we're canceling the show. And obviously, he was never going to. They canceled the show. 10,000 people outside. They wow. canceled the show. So John Wibberspoon at this point was like, I'm out. I'm out. And he got on a plane and he went back home. And I was like, well, I, my flight home was booked from the next city. So I had to get on the tour <laughs> bus and go to the next city. And obviously, Cat never just turned, just didn't turn up. And then I just got a plane and went back to LA. So five shows. I did. I did five shows. I was paid for three. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's but how he's able to give you five. five. But you know what? He paid me more for those shows that I'd asked than I'd asked for. So as far as I'm concerned, he didn't owe me nothing. Yeah. Because yeah. I'd asked for three, expecting two. He paid me five. So. Yeah, he, I, he's yeah. crazy like that. You know, Cat once chased me on a, a, a dirt bike. I was driving my car. <laughs> we did a show. Do you remember the show we did with Lauren Hill for like the BT Awards, like the <laughs> BT Awards weekend? It was like <laughs> Lauren. I, I forget who it was, but. This this guy the- kept trying to I thought he was trying to carjack me or something. <laughs> and the last thing I was expecting was and it was like those, you know, the bicycles where it's like a, a an adult tricycle. Oh, yeah. The, the quad bike things. Like yeah, those, he had, yeah. He had like an adult tricycle. <gasps> those oh, yeah. are scary when a dude roll up on you on those. Right. And, and I was like, talent. I was near Skid Row. Like we were leaving the Staples yeah. Centers. But, you know, like Skid Row's near there. Yeah. So that's what I thought was he kept now. It's like it's Cat Williams, nigga. And I was like, why are you chasing me on a bicycle? <laughs> yeah, he my cat story. I met Cat one <laughs> time too. I met Cat. Yeah, there's yo, man. Oh, everyone got cat stories. Dude, I met one. him once. 
Yeah, he was at the uh we did a show in uh this is a House of Blues back, you know, when House of Blues was in LA on Sunset. And uh right. it was like us, I think like us dilated people's quality and like some other people. And uh little brother, I think we were really like first or second going, whatever, but we did the show and it was dope. It went off. And so afterwards we went up to like the little area where they were just having drinks and just kind of mm-hmm. social area. And Cat is there and he just comes up to me. And like, you know, I think it's his people's wedding. He's like, yo, it's Cat, whatever. You know, he, he loved the show, whatever. I'm like, oh, that's dope. What's up? So I just walk up to him like, what's up, man? And he gets it to me. He leans in. He's like, when Obama get in office, <laughs> the people is going to be looking for something different. And they're going to be wanting something new. And y'all are going to be part of that something new. And up until the time when you really take off, if you need 20, 30 Gs just to put in your pockets, you come holler at me. Oh, my Take God. <laughs> I was like, what? what the fuck? And so then he calls his girl over. He's like, yeah, get get my number. What? So I'm just talking to this girl. Like, I don't know who she is. I'm just like, okay, wow. I, I don't, wait, what the fuck is happening? That? And I, bro, oh, that's yeah. what he said. And I was He's like, okay. Godfather. And he gave me, well, I mean, he didn't give me like no money, but she gave me a number and I gave her number to my manager at the time. And I just walked away. I was just like, okay, I don't know what that was. Yeah, but, but that's what he does. He, he used yeah. to sit in the back of comedy clubs. And if he liked your set, He'd call you over and go, whatever I've got in my pocket is yours. And wow. he'd just take out his money. Wow. That, that's another time I met him, I did a show, and he just called me over and he's like, whatever i got in my money, in my pocket. And he took out $500 and just gave it to me. That's what he used to do. Wow. He, he, look, he's a... And he was right about your future, Fonte. How about that? Yeah, he's a good dude. Yeah, yeah, no, nah, he what, saw what, it. He saw what, it. Whatever they say about Kat, he's a yeah. good dude. A genius comic. Genius comic. One of the best comics working today without a doubt just yeah. one of the best and a good dude his heart is good he's crazy but his heart is good, <laughs> heart is good. my question was totally I, i'll say mine for last because it's a totally kind of offbeat question but i'll let you go no well i wanted to know like what what comedians do you enjoy working with or who do you not even working with like who do you laugh at like who's your favorite Gosh, there are so many. I watch or is that so general? Movies. Too general to ask. You know, obviously the the usual suspects, but I like to name comics that people might never have yes, heard of. Please do. Like, uh, there's a comedian called Erin Jackson. Okay. Hilarious. Yep, I know Erin. Yep. Funny black woman, hilarious, and she just did one of Tiffany's specials. And oh, okay. I gotta give Tiffany a shout out. Like. She bringing people through. Like she's yeah. putting her money. She put her own money in to make these specials, mm-hmm. wow. to make sure that everybody got paid properly. She put her own money in. That's what I'm talking about. She's bringing people through. Like, you know, a lot of people make it and they just don't really go back to pull the others forward, pull mm-hmm. others up with them. Tiffany is not that person. That's true. She goes back and she goes, yeah. So, you know, shout out to Tiffany. She's a she's a diamond. But yeah, Erin Jackson, hilarious. A uh, young comedian called Joelle Johnson, Hilarious. I feel like I know it. Uh, like, there's a lot of black women that are out there just doing good things and they need breaks. There's so many good ones out there. So I like to name, I like to name. But maybe, look, shout out to Z-Way and my, yeah. my, my sister got the comedy special. I mean, yeah, on uh, like, the show on Comedy Central. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're all out there doing it. We're all out there doing it. But yeah, yeah, these are comics that should be getting, you know, I'm glad Erin got her special. She got her shine. But yeah, it's a long time in this business. Yeah, we need more. We need more right, people like right. that. I, I could name the usual suspects, but that's boring. Everybody names the same. Thing. Right, everyone knows them. Yeah. All right, so now you know. Now that the the book is out there, and yes. cat handed, please buy it. It's out today. Yes, it's out. I it's was going to say it's a good book. Do you do you hope to option it for 
movie rights to do your life story or absolutely uh, if you read or the book, a series there are, there are crazy stories in there i've i've led a life and i've had a journey and i definitely want to option it serialization so so know. what so my question what american actress plays gina yashere in your movie <laughs> 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 in my africa <laughs> Who, who who would you cast to play you? Cynthia Revo. Wait, no, 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 no. Check it. Yeah, check it. Good. This might be an unpopular opinion. Mm-hmm. I loved her in that Aretha joint. For me, the only thing, yeah, it was the only that the Aretha joint. I loved it. The only place where it fell apart was the singing, and not because oh, yeah, Cynthia can't it. sing. Like I thought they should have pulled a Ray, but I don't know if they had rights to the music. But where right. they just I don't think they did. Kind of lip sync. Yeah, no, but, I mean, because she can sing. The family were not feet. They didn't get permission, so they couldn't get all the mm-hmm. like the famous Aretha songs. Mm-hmm. You know? But she's but, a yeah. talented girl. Talented. Uh, she killed that role. I thought she did. Really good. Yeah. Everybody showed up. Yeah, she talented, man. Yeah, he is so. very talented. Yeah. Okay, Gina. So who plays um, a black Brit? Yeah, yeah. Who play? Who? See, Theo Revo. That's who plays Gina Yashere. All right, in, cool. No, for real. On the on the Lifetime special, the Lifetime yeah. version a of cute, a, cute, <laughs> a cuter version of me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I I Gina. So this is a question I need to know for uh, as a black Brit. It's very it's rare that we get like black Brits on the show. So okay. This is this is a question I've never <laughs> had a chance to ask. What, in your opinion, is the greatest black British song, and why is it Return of the Mac? Think <laughs> <laughs> of the show's over. Return of the Mac! <laughs> Yo, think of the show's over. Which has not been on Tune Tuesday yet. Mm-hmm. Hey, let's talk. Come on. I heard we need it the other day. I was watching some movie, some TV show, and they used it, and I was like, it oh, was, uh, I think it might have been, it was your girl, uh, Sam J. I was yep. like, Return yeah. <laughs> What was that song like in Europe? Like, what was it going off okay, like it was over big. in the he UK? Was, he was about to be a big star. He was about to be a big star. And then he just okay. like, started getting right? into trouble and the press started turning against him and then his career disappeared. But he was, he was going to be a big star. People were singing that song. He was huge. It was a big song. Man, I, lo- I still sing that song. Fonte, I, I was, I was a firsthand <laughs> witness to that song working. Yeah, it was a big tune. <laughs> I was I was firsthand witness, but the big tune. The th- it was a big tune. I think he kept like trying to. I think in '95 the thing was sort of like I got to get more press by being more gangster. Yeah. I always felt like all those arrests that he was getting into yeah. was like on purpose, just to yeah, and to he generate just messed up his own career because the press turned against him, and that was the end of that. It was stupid. Yeah. I don't know where he is now. <laughs> and you got me with that one. You got me with that one. <laughs> All right. Well, we got to find Mark Morrison. Um, yes. Well, we thank you for coming thank on the you show. Thank you for having me. Thank um, you so much fun. Congratulations, we, we man. Thank you. Congratulations, Congratulations on some extra freedom. I know you ain't totally free, but you seem freer than most. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. no, man. I am, and I want to come on that podcast with Jules Scott, too. I love Jules Scott. All right, I'm going to... Now, you on that podcast. Oh, that's God. A boy, yeah. That's a three-parter. I love Jill Scott. I met her once, and she gave me a number, and I lost it. I was so mad. I was at the BET Awards in 2008, and I was doing red carpet stuff, and they her people tried to drag her past me. And I was like, no, you ain't, Jill Scott. I come all the way from England for this shit. You better not walk past me on this red carpet. And then she came back, and she was like, are you the girl from Death Comedy Jam? And I was like, yes. And she was like, oh, you're funny. And I'm like, yeah. And then she performed later on in the evening and it was mm. for all these BET executives and they were being all too cool for school. 
like sitting there pretending and I got up and I was dancing and mouthing all the words to her songs and she was like, mm-hmm. I like it. And she was like, here's my number. If you ever need anything, call me. And then I, that fucking phone crashed. And that's <laughs> when I never got in touch with Jill Scott and I was so mad at myself. So tell her it's I done. love her. It's done. No, you're on the show. It's yeah, done. You got to book her. Like, yeah, it's yeah. done. It's done. That's going to yeah. be crazy. Um, well, thank you for coming on the show. Um, on behalf of Team Supreme, Laia, Fontigolo, and Sugar Steve. Thank you, Gina. Thank you very much for having there me. There it is. So fun. Gina Yashere, y'all. And this is Quest Love. <laughs> we'll see you on the next go round of Quest Love Supreme. Thank you. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte. Make sure you keep up with us on Instagram at QLS and let us know what you think and who should be next to sit down with us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. All right. Peace. Quest Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life. Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.